Uh, We do pray that uh, this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, that famous Christmas passage. Um, If you don't know where Colossians is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd, Corinthians, General Electric Power Company, it's company in that, or go eat popcorn, either one will work. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Um, you need a mnemonic to help you find it, Uh, that's where it is. Um, We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 today a little bit. Uh, Before, as you're making your way there, this passage of scripture really talks about Jesus. And during the season of Advent, the church focuses on who Jesus is. During the season of Lent or Easter, the church focuses on what Jesus does. But more during Advent, we focus on who Jesus is. Um, And who he is has great import for what he does. Who he is has great import for why he's able to do what he does. And uh, Advent is a time of year where we remember Christ's birth, his first coming, but we also look forward to his second coming. And so who he is is of great importance for both of those comings. And so uh, today, as we read Colossians 1, 9 through 17, uh, keep that in mind. Who is this Jesus? So here from the word of God. For this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. This ends the reading of God's Word. Uh, I love this passage. It's a challenging passage. You might feel, wow, that's a little didactic, which is a big fancy word for dry, uh, possibly, because it's got all this teaching in it. And I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking it. And let me start out by trying to make it a little simple for us, because simple helps me uh, a lot. And so I see in this passage a couple of things. The first thing I see is that Jesus Christ is the cosmic king. Jesus Christ is the cosmic king. And the second thing I see is, and he needs to be or he can be the king of your personal life. 
And you see this in this passage where Paul is talking about a cosmic king of all, over all, in all things, in all things, he holds things together. But you also see this, he needs to be your personal king, peace as well. So I want to spend some time uh, looking through that. Now, we're good Americans. Anybody not a good American here today? Yeah, you, I didn't think anybody raised their hand on that one. Um, we don't have a king. We don't need no stinking king, right? Because kings, you can't vote out. You have to like execute them to get rid of them. You know, you got to depose them. You got to find other kings. We like presidents. We like to vote. We like to have a say. We don't want a king. At the time of the writing of this book, Paul lived in an empire. Paul lived in a place where there was an emperor, and the emperor uh, was like a king. And he was over a great, huge geographical region, especially for that era. And the emperor had the power of life and death in his hand, literally. If you've seen the movie Gladiator, then you know a little bit about how Hollywood interprets this and sees this. Uh, But the Gladiator games, the gladiators would fight one another to the death in the Colosseum. And one of the gladiators would, would clearly be defeated. He would fall to the ground. And the other gladiator was about to strike the death blow. And before he would do that, he would look to the emperor. And the emperor would stand. And the emperor would hold his hand out. And if he gave thumbs up, the gladiator lived for another day. But if he gave thumbs down, that gladiator was executed. Thank God our president doesn't have that kind of power. I like presidents. I like being able to vote them out every few years if, if we feel the need. Uh, an emperor is scary. Today's words for these kinds of things oftentimes are dictators. And that's more the kind of thing that Paul and the ancient people often lived under was dictatorships. Now, there were called kingdoms, there were kings, and I guess you could argue that the bad ones were like dictators and the good ones were kings. I guess you could think about it that way. But even the good ones, the good kings, had immense power over their subjects. And here we come to this text. We come to this text 2,000 years later. We come to this text and we have really no understanding of a kingdom whatsoever. We, we watch the royals. We buy People magazine. We see that there's a new princess. But really, that's just kind of fluff and weird. It's not really the British government. They have a parliament. You can sit and watch them for hours. It's way more fun than C-SPAN. Because the prime minister has to come and he gets just decimated, destroyed, ridiculed. And they all have that awesome accent, which makes them sound brilliant. (laughs) Now, a king wouldn't ever show up for that kind of undressing. So we know that the true government is in the House of Parliament. It's not really... The king, the queen, the royals, they're a figurehead in the British Empire nowadays. In Paul's day, 
There were kings. There were queens. And they had power that would boggle our minds, that would irritate us, that we wouldn't like. And may I suggest to you that this is partly why we struggle with this notion of Jesus as king. May I suggest to you this is partly why this is such an abstract kind of idea to us. Maybe this is why we gravitate more to the term Lord sometimes as opposed to king. Jesus is Lord. You hear that spoken of far more than Jesus is king. But even that word, what on earth do we mean by Jesus is Lord? A Lord is oftentimes seen as a person that has slaves. And if you remember John the Baptist, John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus. And John the Baptist was a person that Jesus himself said, there has never been anyone like John the Baptist before him and there will never be one after him. And Jesus had the highest regard, the highest understanding of who John the Baptist was. And John the Baptist, his personal understanding of himself, he said, one is coming after me who is greater than me. Somebody who is so great that I am not even worthy to untie his shoes. Now, why would he say that? Well, back then, untying somebody's shoes, or in this case, sandals. I mean, think about, think about wearing sandals at the sail barn. That's what the streets in the ancient world were kind of like. I mean, there was a bunch of donkeys around, and there were animals all over. They didn't have sanitation departments that show up on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday to cart off your junk. And so what did you do with your trash, your refuse? What did, what did all the animal stuff end up? Where did all that go? Nobody had invented, you know, muck boots. Nobody had sandals. If you were fortunate, many people went on unshod. They didn't have shoes. And John says, I'm not even unworthy to undo his sandals. And undoing somebody's sandals in that culture was the job of a slave. Because it was a very unpleasant job. And then to wash the foot was a very unpleasant experience. Today, I don't think any of us go, yes, I want to wash some feet. Right? It's not really a sought-after profession. It's not really a profession. How many of you would want to pay somebody to wash your feet? Some of us, we have some explaining to do. And never mind the big toe. I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) Right? And John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm like less than a slave to this guy who's coming. Jesus is king. He's the cosmic king. And honestly, for many of us, that's kind of bad news. Now, let me try to help you understand why that's good news. Did you hear in this text some of the things that this cosmic king is about? Now, Eastern religions talk about God being part of creation, kind of emanating from the world, kind of being in a rock or a tree or a shrub or however that works in Eastern religions. But this Christian religion, the religion of Paul, the religion of the early Christians, the religion of the Israelites taught that God was before creation. 
Not only was God before creation, but here we learn that Jesus existed before creation. The Christian doctrine came along and and tried to explain that. Actually, the ancient Jewish people had an understanding of this. They called it the two powers in heaven. And they actually believed that there was an unseen God, Yahweh, who existed in the heavenly realm or in in the unseen realm. And then there was his angel of Yahweh character who would show up and you could see the angel of Yahweh character. And that was the second power of heaven. You see that character in the burning bush experience of Moses. You see that character when he interacts with Samuel, when Samuel says, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. And the scripture says right there, the word of God came and stood before Samuel. You see this character interacting uh, with, with Joshua, the angel of Yahweh. And Joshua says, what side are you on? And he says, I am on the Lord's side. I'm not on your side. I'm on Yahweh's side. Christian theologians call these theophanies, the appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament prior to his birth, his incarnation in the New Testament. And we further develop this doctrine to include the Holy Spirit. And so Christians have this idea of the Trinity. And here we see that Jesus existed before creation. Jesus is separate from creation. Jesus is transcendent of creation. He is over creation. How did Paul say? Verse 16. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, Christ, and for him. Do you see what was included in that list? Visible and invisible. You know, we're all modern people, right? I mean, we all watch those goofy shows on History Channel sometimes or or the Sci-Fi Channel sometimes with a very skeptical mind of, you know, uh, the ghost hunter people, right? Or the folks who are looking for ancient aliens that help to, you know, make corn circles or whatever. And we're all modern people. And we all think, if I can't see it, then I don't believe it. And many Christians, we fall into this category that we believe just enough supernatural stuff that gets us saved. We believe just enough supernatural stuff uh, to, to, yeah, I believe there's a heaven, whatever that is. I believe in there there's a God that feels nice. I like that. Yeah, it seems like there might be a bad guy, maybe Satan. I believe in a virgin birth. I believe in resurrection from the dead for Jesus. We believe just enough supernatural. But here this text says, Jesus has created all things that are visible and all things that are invisible. And as modern people, we wrestle with that. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit because I think it's important in our modern era for us to give this some thought. Because when we say that Jesus has created, one of the things that we see is order in nature, order in creation. And the amount of order in creation is astounding. It's amazing. In fact, the disorder that's happening in California right now just kind of highlights how unnatural it is to have that going on. My parents and my, uh, my brother and his wife and their little guy are flying. My folks went to, to, to San Diego 
or California, the LA area yesterday, and they're going today. And uh, I was wishing them well and saying goodbye, and hopefully you don't get evacuated, <laughs> right? Because that wouldn't be fun on vacation, spend your whole vacation like at a Red Cross shelter or something when you hope to go to Disneyland. Um, and it's unnatural what's going on. Hurricanes, they're unnatural. They're out of the ordinary. Yeah, they happen with some frequency, but we can pretty much expect what's going to happen day in, day out. If you weigh a rock yesterday and it weighed two pounds, how much do you think it's going to weigh today? 200? Just, whoa, I don't know how that happened. That's amazing. In fact, just the idea that we have science says how regular and orderly nature is. Science is one of the first evidences that that nature is orderly, that it is predictable. You can actually make predictions about things, and then you can test your predictions. It's called the scientific method. And we wouldn't even be able to get up out of bed if it wasn't like this in the world. There has to be this normalcy. In fact, this normalcy was so troubling to David Hume and Bertrand Russell. Russell, And they were both philosophers. Hume was in the 18th century and Russell was in the 20th century. And Hume was an agnostic and Russell was an atheist. And they both admitted that the order in nature puzzled them. It puzzled them. Because they felt like that if, if everything in this world, everything in life, everything that you see and interact with was the result of just molecules running into one another, then it shouldn't result in predictable order. It should actually be chaos. Hume actually went on and he said, just the fact that there's order in the world does not necessarily prove that there's a God, but it sure makes it difficult to disprove that there's a God. And this order in the world is a problem for atheists. And we take it for granted as modern people that the world is scientific and orderly. And let me just tell you that theism and science are friends. There is no fight between the two. There is no truth that a scientist will unearth that is going to shock or unearth or, or, or undermine scripture. All truth is God's truth. It may undermine our preconceived notions, our worldview as to how we have fit all these things into a particular formula or particular way of thinking about the world. But if it's ultimately true, it's not undermining God's truth. One of the things, too, that we see is moral order. We see physical order, but we also see a moral order. And isn't this the discussion in our pop culture, in the news media so often? It's a moral outcry. Moral outcry about Weinstein and his behavior towards women. Uh, Moral outcry towards Al Franken and his alleged behavior towards women. Roy Moore and his alleged behavior towards women. President Trump and his alleged behavior towards women. 
and its moral outcry that that's not the way to treat women. (laughs) Frankly, it's not the way to treat anyone. And let me say that in a room this size and with the religious conviction that many of us feel, I'd be remiss to believe that there's not abuse going on in some homes in this church. It does happen. And it's often rampant and it's often dressed up in religiosity. Well, God made me the head of the house and therefore you will do. It's a power play. If you keep reading that passage of scripture and all the others that talk about Jesus uh, and his headship, it says he loved his church and gave himself up for her so that he could present her as holy and pure, radiant, without blemish. Is that what headship often looks like in Christian marriages? Is it laying down ourself for our wives, men? Or is it saying, you need to lay yourself down for me? You see, we all see the moral issues in our culture, but modern people, the left, liberals, even they see an outcry of moral issues. But what footing do they have for this outcry? If you do not believe in a God, and if you believe that everything has happened as a result of random chance and molecules banging into each other and some great big bang over eons of time that there was somehow at some moment something happened to the swirling green soup, then every emotion you have is just a chemical reaction. Every emotion, every thought is a chemical reaction in your brain. And so when you feel love and joy at the time of Christmas, Garrison Keillor talks about this, who's an atheist. If you believe that love and joy are real things that you experience, then it is something that has to do with this memory and your neocortex just feed your brain these Chemicals that make you feel happy and peaceful and joy and love. But Garrison Keillor, along with many others, look at the world and they regularly rant and rave about how cruel and unjust and how horrific the world is. But to be consistent as an atheist, as a person who doesn't believe that there's a God and there's a moral order, I mean, they believe in moral order, but the only reason they believe in moral order is because there are chemical reactions in their brain that are telling them, I hate that, that's cruel, that's terrible. And it's a chemical reaction telling them that this chemical reaction should be preferred over this chemical reaction. That I prefer the love and joy and peace chemical reaction to the hate and cruelty chemical reaction. There's no other way to think through that. There's no moral high ground. But Christianity comes along and says, Jesus has created everything visible and invisible. He has created morality. We can't see it, but we all 
can feel it. He says here also that he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and placed us into the dominion of his son, the king whom he loves. You see, the Bible is really clear. It says there is moral order in this world. God created the world with physical order and moral order, and Jesus is king of that. If you deny the king, you have a lot of explaining to do. If you deny that there is a cosmic king, I don't know how you look at things and you're consistent. And Paul goes on and he makes this argument. And in fact, it's not so much an argument as it is a prayer. Did you see how the reading began in verse 9? He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying. Verses 9 through 13 are are Paul's prayer for the Colossians. It's Paul's prayer. He records his prayer for us and for them so they can know what he's praying for them. And what he prays for them is that since Jesus is the cosmic king, he should be your personal king too. I mean, listen to how he prays. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Being, do you notice how Paul likes run-on sentences, by the way? Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and, keeps going, no period, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. This is Paul's prayer. And he's telling us how to become people who have a personal king, Jesus. Just like John the Baptist knew he wasn't qualified to be the forerunner of Jesus. Just like the John the Baptist felt like and believed he wasn't qualified to undo Jesus' sandals. Neither are you. But did you hear how Paul puts it here? The Father who has qualified you. The Father who has qualified you. There's not a thing you can do to qualify yourself. You can never be good enough. You can never be smart enough. You can never be perfect. You can't. It's impossible. It's a fool's errand. But he, the Father, qualifies you. And this is the story of Christmas. This is the story of Advent. How does he do that? Jesus comes into the world. He puts on flesh. He moves into our neighborhood. He lives the life that you and I couldn't live. Moms, would you like to have a perfect child? Now think carefully before you answer that. Because my guess is this perfect child may create feelings of shame and guilt in you at times. Remember Mary and Joseph? They lost Jesus for a few days. If you think you're a bad parent, parents, just read that story. They misplaced the Son of God for a few days. 
okay? Like they had journeyed a day's travel away from town and they look in the back of the station wagon and nobody's in the station wagon. I thought he was with you. Well, I thought he was with you. Well, he's not. Where is he? I don't know. Well, I guess we're going to have to go back and see. They wandered around Jerusalem for days trying to find Jesus. When they find him, the perfect child, his response is, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Excuse me, young man. (laughs) Be careful how you answer that question, moms. Would you like a perfect son? Would you like a perfect daughter? I think I'd only like that if I was perfect myself. Mary and Joseph had a perfect son. He never once had to say, Mom, I messed up. I'm sorry. Wow. What else happens in homes? What el- how would you spend your entire day? What do you do for fun? You can't even have a good argument. You need to do this because I told you. I know, I already did it. I took care of it. You didn't even have to tell me. Okay, that's totally weird. I don't know what to do. Imagine being Jesus' brothers and sisters. Gosh, I can never live up to Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I know. He's perfect. I don't know what's your problem. Well, your problem is your dad's kid. (laughs) That's your problem. You're Joe's kid. Jesus never never once had to say he's sorry. Never once had to apologize. Never once had a regret. Never once was like, oops, did that wrong. Never once. Could you imagine? And that's the life. That's the life that was available to Adam and Eve before the fall. They weren't perfect like Jesus is perfect, but they had the opportunity to live a life without regret. They had the opportunity to live a life, but they messed it up. They chose poorly. They were deceived. They ate the fruit. They had one command, thou shalt not eat this. Have you ever parented with just one command? And they still break that command. That's what God experienced. Jesus came and he lived this perfect life. And then he died the death that we all deserve to die. And he was torn apart on the cross for us. You see, one quick way to know if you have King Jesus as a personal king is how do you do when life is hard? The word that Paul talks about here of holding the world together, the word that Paul uses here is a word that the Stoic philosophers really liked. And Stoics, their whole thing was about keeping it together when life's difficult, not showing emotion, gritting your teeth and getting through it. And that's the word that Paul chooses to use here, that he holds all things 
together. And the word I think that he chooses there is an intentional word because he's saying, if you have King Jesus, he will hold you together. And one way to think about this is, do you live in a cosmos of your personal life or do you have a chaos of a personal life? You see, Jesus keeps the cosmos in order. He keeps it together. He keeps it holding. And if you have King Jesus, he'll hold you together. Well, wait a minute. I I have loved ones who have cancer. I have loved ones who are Christians and everything's falling apart in their life. I'm not telling you that everything will be hunky-dory and your life will be fantastic and you'll live the American dream. I'm telling you that if Jesus is your king, even while your life falls apart, you'll react differently. As your life falls apart, Jesus will hold you together. Jesus will hold it all together. And he'll get you through. Just as Jesus holds the cosmos together with his lordship, he'll hold you together with his lordship. Paul prays for the people. And this prayer is a blueprint of how to get Jesus to be our king. And over and over again in that prayer, you know what I see? Process. He used words like patience. I hate that word. You ever gone shopping this time of year? I mean, you need Jesus as your Lord just to hold you together in a parking lot with a bunch of idiots. We're at the store with a moron running the checkout thing. And by the way, those are self-checkout things. And now it's me that's the moron. (laughs) And you need Jesus. You see, what you need if your life falls apart and you don't handle it well, you don't react well, then that tells you that those parts aren't in King Jesus. Those parts under, are not underneath the kingdom of Christ. And it's a process because I can tell you, my kids, my wife, people who know me well can tell you, hmm, Steve, should you have been the one preaching today? I'll go back real quick and I'll say, the father who has qualified you, not Steve, who has qualified himself, God has qualified me, and he's in the process. Right before that, it says, to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. You see, there are things in my life that are in the dominion of the kingdom of darkness. And all those things that are in that dominion are tearing me apart and tearing up my family and tearing up things in my life and in this church and in this world. And the process that God has for me is that I remove those things. He removes those things from the kingdom of darkness and he gets those things into light. If we do that, if we allow him to be our Lord, if we allow him to be our king, he will hold us together. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for King Jesus that one day 
this world that awaits its rightful king, he will come. And we look forward to the day where universal health care will be assured because Jesus raises the dead. And death will be no more. And illness and sickness will be vanquished. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. We look forward to the day where people will no longer be hungry because Jesus is king and he makes stones into bread. We look forward to the day when people all around the world have clean drinking water. They don't have to worry about parasites. They don't have to worry about waterborne illness. They don't have to worry about dying from dehydration because Jesus is the living water. And Lord, thank you that we can participate now in making you king in our personal lives and then living that out cosmically through our giving, through our generosity. Jesus comes soon. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you embrace Jesus as king this Christmas. Amen.